0: where the southeasternmost part of Washington and Oregon meet at the border of Idaho. That's where the, the Nez Perce Reservation is. And I went there to record songs and stories of the Nez Perce. And, and when I met this guy, Angus Wilson, the elder, he said to us, what do you do? I said to him, well, I'm, I'm a musician. And he said, what do you mean you're a musician? I said, well, I'm a musician. I, I play music. I play synthesizer. He didn't know what that was. I explained it to him. And then he said, you know, you guys don't know anything about music. And that kind of uh, caught my attention. I said, what do you mean we don't know anything about music? I said, that's all I've been doing is playing and studying music all my life. And he said, well, he said, "Uh, if you're curious, he said, come with me tomorrow morning and I'll show you. And it was October and it was freezing. It was in the 20s and he he got us in the car and he drove us down to this site. And he said, "Uh, I want you to sit by this stream that feeds into this lake, and I want you to sit here and be quiet. We sat there at the stream for 20, 30 minutes, freezing our butts off. And finally, there was this great wind that came up uh, down the valley where the stream was, And uh, it began to blow quite hard, to the point where, all of a sudden, there was this sound of a giant pipe organ. We sat there looking at each other, totally puzzled by the origins of this sound. And finally, uh, Wilson came up to us and he said, you know, he said, "Uh, do you guys have any idea where that sound came from? And he grabbed us by the shoulders, pulled us over toward the edge of the stream. And sure enough, there were these different lengths of reeds that were broken by the wind at different lengths. And as the wind blew over the holes of the reeds, it excited them into sound. And he walked into the stream, took his knife out of the sheath at his side and and, uh, cut a length of reed off and drilled a couple of holes in it and actually began to play the flute. And he said to us, this is how we got our sound and our music and that's how you got yours. So it came from the wind. My name is Bernie Krauss, and I'm a bioacoustician, and you're listening to Stylus. The soundscape is all the sound that reaches a receiving organ of any living organism. But that sound, in turn, has to emanate from one or more three sources, and they are the geophony, which we're going to talk about today, and the biophony and the anthropony. The geophony is all the non-biological natural sound that's generated in a given habitat. The biophony is the collective sound made up of all the vocal organisms in a given habitat, whether its origins are terrestrial or marine. And the third is the anthropony, all of the sounds we humans make, but primarily those coming from electromechanical technology that we've created. We're gonna discuss today one of those three components, and it is the geophany. And in general, the geophany is the first sound on Earth. And it was the first that organisms heard as they developed in marine environments. The sea state noise at the surface, the the waves, the uh, amplitude of the waves that was generated by wind on the surface that wave action was probably the first kind of sound that uh, organisms heard.
1: The human ear is alert, like that of an animal. From the nearest details to the most distant horizon, the ears operate with seismographic delicacy. I'm uh, Murray Schaefer, and um, I'm a, a composer of music. Shepherds may, as Lucretius suggests, have got the hint of singing and whistling uh, from the sound of the wind. Virgil says that uh, Pan taught the shepherd how to join a set of reeds with wax as a means of conversing with the landscape. Goethe, his ear pressed to the grass, when I hear the humming of the little world among the stalks, and am near the countless indescribable forms of the worms and insects, then I feel the presence of the Almighty, who created us in his own image.
0: Wind is a perfectly good example of the kinds of sound uh, that we would experience on land. We really can't hear the sound of wind. And that's because it's not inherently sonic. We can only hear its effects. And by that I mean, think about this for a second, the rustling of leaves and trees or grasses. Um, Wind howling by snags and trees or bushes. Or around the corner of your house. Or through a partially open window, where you hear kind of pitched wind as as uh, the velocity of wind changes outside. And I once recorded wind that was tonally sonified as it blew through a couple of pieces of barbed wire in the southwest desert of Arizona. And I was just standing there and and happened to hear this pitched sound as, and I stuck my. Microphones just below that barbed wire fence and happened to catch that one wound. The wind is a signature that can be especially terrifying and destructive, as when it becomes a gale force or tornado like.
2: I think it's our time to go. We're leaving the
3: radar image.
0: Back. There are other examples of terrifying geophonies like severe thunderstorms or earthquakes, avalanches and landslides. Sometimes, the geophany might be influencing or inspiring uh, the voices of a few remarkable vertebrates. Locate in your mind the equator and imagine thunderstorms occurring all around that central band. The electrical energy created by those storms is radiated outward along the magnetic field to both poles where the electrical signals can be detected by low-frequency radio receivers, sometimes like the instruments set up by NASA in the Antarctic. And they're also detected, we think, by Weddell seals in the Antarctic, and 12,000 miles away, their cousins, the bearded seals in the Arctic. Remember that none of these critters ever come in contact with one another. First, let's listen to the sounds of the whistlers, as they're called by NASA, which is the electrical energy that's generated by thunderstorms 5,000 miles from where these were recorded. And now, let's listen to this great-looking critter called a Weddell seal. This recording, by the way, was made by Doug Quinn. Now listen to listen to its cousin the bearded seal. This recording was made by Martin Stewart, another colleague, and the bearded seal lives in the Arctic and these critters never come in contact with one another. Do you see how similar they are to the sounds of that of those thunderstorms? What we think is happening Because of a certain amount of magnetite in the heads of these animals, they're able to actually receive these signals, much like we hear these anecdotal stories of people receiving radio signals through the amalgam in their teeth, the silver amalgam. I've actually experienced that myself, so it happens, let me tell you.
1: Sweet is the whispered sound of yonder pine tree by the springs, goat herd, and sweet too but thy piping, sweeter, shepherd, falls thy song, than yonder stream that tumbles, splashing from the rocks.
0: As a kid, I really suffered from a terrible case of ADHD. And I still do as an adult. And one of the things that I found accidentally when I went out to record natural soundscapes the first time in uh, 46 years ago, and I turned on that recorder and had my earphones on, and I heard that whole space open up and heard that ambient hush of the forest that I was standing in, I just felt extremely calm and centered and relaxed for the first time in my life these soundscapes, whether we're urban, rural, or wild, these soundscapes are a narrative of place. The more wild they are, the more that they gravitate toward geophonies and biophanies, the more healthy the habitat is. And we want to start thinking about ways in which we can make that kind of event occur in our lives.
4: One of the major Catholic sites where Aye is being worshipped is El Rincon. And there are thousands of people who go on pilgrimages there. And I think the majority uh, do not go for San Lázaro, but uh, they go for Babaluayi. Their name is
5: Babalu. You nauseous know she's king?
6: My name is Neil Ross, and it was my pleasure and privilege to portray the character of Baba Louie at the Fender Bender 500.
4: Who would have, uh, you know, caught on to, you know, where that name comes from?
6: Probably at some point, Hannah or Barbara or one of the writers was looking at an I Love Lucy episode and her Desi.
7: Ricky Ricardo!
8: uh,
6: Singing or shouting Baba Lou, and uh, hmm, what if I added an EY? (laughs) Uh, my name is Joseph Armillas Lacorna, and I'm the son of Margarita Lacorna, the composer of Babalu. Mamalu. Well, I got lots of anecdotes about my mom. Mother's family had been wealthy, and when the slaves were freed in Cuba, a young boy named Porfirio decided to remain with the family. and. He taught her all about Afro-Cuban uh, music and the lore of, of the African gods. She wrote two songs based on that particular culture, Babalu and Tabu, and uh, Jesse Arnaz was Cuban, and coming from Cuba, I guess he knew the song and uh, put it on the show, and thank God to him because that's one of the things that helped Babalu become such a big worldwide hit.
4: I think the majority of, you know, people who watched I Love Lucy had no clue what this was about. This is Stefan Palmier, and I'm a professor of anthropology at the University of Chicago. He is, you know, quite an awesome uh, deity who would just simply destroy its host, you know, just blow their mind. So you, you don't want to take, uh, you know, Baba Luayi lightly, which also speaks to his name, because, you know, what it means in uh, in Yoruba is lord of the world. It's a euphemism.
9: My name's Amanda Villpastor, and I'm a lecturer in African music at Cardiff University. In Nigeria, it's a, it's a drum language. The feeling of the rhythm is said to somehow reflect the nature of that orisha.
4: Baba Luayes tend to be relatively slow. Uh,
9: medium tempo.
4: But, you know, you, you would actually recognize it from the rhythm itself.
10: The songs that are sung in religious contexts are always in Lukumi, the variation of Yoruba that gets spoken in Cuba. I'm Michael Atwood-Mason. I'm the director of the Smithsonian Center for Folklife and Cultural Heritage. So uh, a Spanish-language song is not used to call down the deities because the deities respond to their native language. There is a text
9: that everyone knows, and it's something like, Iancota, Iancota.
10: The first line of which is, Agatagutu, Agualerizo.
9: One of the interesting things is that the Yoruba collaborators that I've run that song past and the drum language, they don't understand it. And they've they even said that that's not Yoruba.
10: All of the rest of the tradition, which is incredibly complex and rich and beautiful, there is always the presence of Babalu Aye as the earth the earth into which our bodies will be delivered. It's that fundamental realization that human beings are vulnerable and the experience of that vulnerability leads you to look towards an image of the divine that isn't perfect. So borrowing Baba Louis, banking Babalou aye into Babalui doesn't seem particularly meaningful to me because it's a it's a transformation of a title. It's not even close to his actual name.
9: Well, had I only known that, it would have been a completely different performance.
6: Maybe in different African countries, the Babalu means something else. Who knows, you know? Sure, sure. I'll, I'll sing it for you. Babalu, 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 ah, yeah, Babalu. Ah, yeah, then, you know, the beat goes, Dum Dum ah, yeah, ba ah, yeah, <roportion> babalu ah, yeah, ba ah, yeah.
11: You're listening to Stylus, a series about sound, music, and listening. This episode is about songs of the earth.
9: I mean, I think sound is uniquely suitable to evoking a sense of place. My name is Ernst Carroll. I record sound, and I work with sound in different ways.
12: And I'm Helen Mira, and I'm primarily a visual artist, but also work in sound and other things. We're in the space below the um, exhibition space of MIT List, where we have an exhibition hourly directional. One thing about the piece not having an ambition to be a document of a walk, which would be a kind of... Uh, virtual experience instead you have this kind of idea of, of this thing which hopefully gives um, makes you hungry
9: to kind of go out and, and listen
2: I remember a time where uh, like my brother had just moved back out here to Indian Island. and We were out on the dike at, at night, and he was just so awed by uh, Northern Lights. And, um, and I happened to have my hand drum, and I, I told him, I said, watch this. And uh, as I started playing that song, those Northern Lights started, like they're dipping down coming closer and closer to us, like they're dancing. And uh, my brother was just amazed. And I told him, I said, that's what they'll do. That's our connection. Those are our ancestors that are that are showing themselves. And, and when we sing the songs, that brings them closer to us. My name is Bert Polchis, uh, a member of the Penobscot Nation amongst my people. I take care of things uh, more in, in the spiritual nature.
8: We have very uh, intimate relationship with the earth and the river. We considered those all the gifts that we got from the earth as life-given. We have a word that means that. Would say way way salamagwe in uh, Ganita Hama, and those words mean great respect. I have highest regard. I have great respect. It wasn't a religion per se. It was a way of life. My name is Carol Daner, I work for the Penobscot Cultural Historic Preservation Office on Indian Island, and I work in language, they call me the language master. We have animacy in our language, everything's either animate or inanimate, you know, in our language, a pipe and uh, snowshoes are animate.
2: The drum itself, it represents the heartbeat of our Earth Mother. That's, uh, that's how we refer to our Mother Earth. One of the things we always say when, when we end ceremony is, uh, to all my relations, which is uh, you know, all my relatives, we are all related. Throughout creation, we are all related. The song is reminding us that we have to humble ourselves to one another through creation, all elements of creation, as they also humble themselves to us.
12: My name is Lotte Geve, uh, I'm a visual artist, um, and I work in several medias, and I am living and based right now in Amsterdam, the Netherlands, and I make portraits of places. So I recently made a piece uh, which is called The Sound of the Earth, and for this uh, piece I try to make a portrait about deep earth. It's a super adventurous place, it's like it's it's always there, it's, all, it's right below our feet, but we cannot enter it, you know, we can uh, yeah put a shovel in the ground and dig a few meters deep, but but that's about it. And I was thinking like, okay, so we're approaching this uh, as human beings, trying to make sense of this place that we actually know not so much about and we cannot see. So I did decided to make a recording of the sound of the earth. So yeah, I started this whole online investigation and the first hole I stumbled upon, which is the largest of course, the, the most uh, gi- gigantic thing ever made by mankind probably, uh, more expensive than traveling to the moon, was uh, the super deep well in Kola. And Kola is a peninsula uh, in Russia and the Russians have been drilling there for uh, years and years and years in a row. and during this drilling, somewhere halfway or, well, a little bit beyond halfway, there was a sound there. And all the workers had quit and uh, they thought that they, that they had actually just made a hole to the hell and that they could hear the screaming from the voices from the hell, from this huge and super deep hole. And uh, so I started to research further, and I found out that the that it was uh, an enterprise that was still running the the site. And yeah, I might make a mistake now, but I think the name was uh, State Scientific Enterprise of. Super deep and complex investigations of the Earth in- interior, and I thought, wow, what a name! And uh, so I did. I decided to contact them. I thought, I have to go there. I have to go there to record my sounds. But nothing, you know. It was just there was nothing actually leading to this organization, which was on paper operating the site, and I was confused, like this this mysterious corporation with this super mysterious name, with Nobody working there. And I found out that the hole is now actually closed. There's this, um, They poured concrete in the top part of the hole uh, in order to preserve it. You have to think of a super deep hole, a drilled hole, but which has a, a steel casing, as a, a self-destructive entity. Because Earth is, isn't a still object, Earth is moving. You have the, the crust, the mantles, and all this pressure kind of pushes on these casings. So, But anyway, I thought I have to continue my search for the deepest hole on the planet, which now turns a little bit and it became the search for the deepest open hole in the planet. And yeah, I found it like a needle in a haystack. I found the KTB borehole, which is located on the Czech border. And it's um, made by German scientists and it's located in wienisch eschenbach And wienisch eschenbach is a really small farm village in the sloping hills uh, of Germany. And yeah, right there, there is this enormous monumental hole in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the, yeah, the hills, the fields. And um, yeah, I thought, OK, well, this should be the place then. And, and finally, I found this somebody I can talk to that actually operates the site. So And I call his phone number and he picked up. And actually, all, the only thing I could say is, hey, uh, my name is Lotte Geven. I'm a visual artist. How deep is your hole? And there was silence at the other end of the line. I thought like, okay, I, I, I just blew it, you know. And then there was this enormous laughter. And uh, and then he said, it's nine kilometer and 101 meter. And I started explaining my story like, I'm an artist. I'm curious what the, uh, what the earth sounds like. Um, I want to record it from the deepest hole on the planet. Uh, do you want to help me? And the answer was like, yes, yes, with a question mark, because, I mean, it's, what is this question? It's it's small, but it's huge at the same time, and it has no scientific value whatsoever. And then there's this artist, you know, and this artist asking like, hey, what's the earth sound like? So back to the hole itself. I mean, it's probably the size of a soda can, only that small. And I was standing there and I had this enormous sensation of fear of, of heights. And before I, I heard the sounds, uh, I was expecting to hear something deep, you know, because the, the earth is it's a, it's a really big thing. And usually big things make really low and deep sounds. But um, talking with the scientists through the project, they said to me, you know, it's going to be completely silent out there. Don't get your hopes up too high and i explained them like even if that would happen it would be totally fine with me it would be also a poetic document of the of deep earth it would be the recording of silence you know but then a sound in the middle of nothing so there was nothing and then there was this and then there was nothing wow like all the hair on my arm stood up it was amazing and it sounded like yeah like it almost like a thunder really far away something really big and imminent and uh, something comforting and very discomforting at the same time and yeah i thought it was amazing
1: on thursday april 29th 1965 at 8:29 a.m. An earthquake struck the Pacific Northwest. In Puyallup High School on the third floor in room 313, a 30-piece cadet band was rehearsing and in a practice room adjoining the main rehearsal area, band students were filing in one at a time to tape record an assigned test. We believe this to be a most unique and unusual recording. And we know that these sounds will bring back vivid memories to all who experience this terrifying tremor of the Earth's surface.
9: I was listening to when I was a kid was the static uh, while my grandfather was trying to tune up his crystal radio and I found the sounds uh, uh, around getting to a program very very interesting.
5: From Washington, the Voice
3: of
13: America. With Watson, radio was heard before it was invented. He used to, as a boy, like just stare at the stars for long periods at night. And this was not that much different.
9: And then, you know, just radio itself, there were oftentimes crackles and pops that weren't supposed to be part of the program or the signal that you were trying to tune in. But I, I always enjoyed the, the, um, uh, those kinds of artifacts.
13: My name is Douglas Kahn. I'm the author of Earth Sound, Earth Signal, Energies, and Earth Magnitude in the Arts. Radio of any type was first heard by Thomas Watson, Alexander Graham Bell's assistant. Uh, Watson was uh, the chief mechanic. He built the devices. Um, Bell sort of came up with the ideas. They worked very, very closely. They built the first telephone and then the first telephone test line. It was about a half mile iron test line over the rooftops of Boston. This is in 1876. And he hear these sounds coming over the telephone earpiece at night when nobody was talking from the other end. This is written in his uh, autobiography. I used to spend hours at night in the laboratory listening to the many strange noises in the telephone and speculating as to their cause. One of the most common sounds was a snap followed by a grating sound that lasted two or three seconds before it faded into silence, and another was like the chirping of a bird. This is 20 years before Marconi so-called invented the radio.
14: One of the nice things about the story about Watson is that uh, in the late 19th century when he was doing his work, uh, people were just starting to find out a huge number of things about the natural environment. So I'm Phil Erickson. I'm a uh, space plasma physicist, which is a very long way of saying I look at uh, the natural environment in the upper atmosphere of the Earth. I've been working at MIT Haystack Observatory for about uh, 19 years now. And in Watson's case, by laying out this long cable, he had accidentally created a uh, way to actually receive uh, natural radio waves, which it turns out were all around us and have been uh, ever since the world's been around. It's just that it took until that point for technology to advance to the point where one could begin to sense them. The amazing thing is that the source of all this natural hiss and these other radio waves and other kinds of waves that we hear in the atmosphere or can measure with equipment is really due to the fact that we're living next to a very large star. And that star is actually pushing on the whole magnetic field that surrounds our planet and the planet's pushing back. And as part of that reaction, the entire space around the Earth is quivering. The analogy is that if you walk up to a bell and hit it with a hammer, you're basically kicking that bell at a lot of different frequencies at once, but the bell is constructed so that a very clear tone comes back. The natural environment that surrounds us has that same sort of construction. There are some particular uh, waves or frequencies that are going to resonate with the push, and they're going to, in fact, ring back at you.
13: Watson, although he didn't know the exact source, he was hearing sounds of the earth. He heard them aesthetically, but not necessarily musically. Other people in the last quarter of the 19th century did hear them as, as music, and many more people in the 20th century, an increasing number, uh, uh, hear these as, as nature's music.
9: I'm Pauline Oliveros, and I'm a composer and performer, and I live in Kingston, New York. The earth itself is a sonosphere. It's uh, sounding from its core. The sounds are there, but we don't have the organic uh, tool, which would be the ear or the skin, uh, to perceive the the range of waves that are are present in our world, but on, on the other hand, if we were able to hear all of the waves that are that are waving, <laughs> um, the the information would be too much. It would be too much of an overload. I think we hear far more than we listen to, and that there's a big difference between hearing and listening.
14: So so if you take your radio, you have it tuned to a station, someone is sending you music or information, and you tune to a station a little bit off of that one where no one is transmitting, you hear this hissing sound. The the, uh, researchers who had received this eliminated some things as due to the fact that someone was operating a device that happened to radiate radio waves. But if you turned all those devices off, the hiss remained. And in fact, the hiss is not only generated in our upper atmosphere, but is also generated by the cosmos. It was generated by energy that got created a few milliseconds after the universe was created.
1: through a whole cycle of ocean opening and then closing. So, you could say, oh, it must be a button here, oh. and Closing. That took about uh, 500 million years, I'd say. That's one geologic cycle. In human time, you can't really notice oceans opening and closing and continents dancing.
0: But if you're in Grosmourne, you might be lucky some night to catch a dance in Cowhead.
4: Uh, These are tunes that I learned from Mr. Luke Payne, and and they've been played for uh, square dances in Cowhead for many years. All right, so we'll get a little tag and then. And circle it.
10: The two couples that are opposite each, each other they
5: dance into the center and then you those two watch couples watch. sort of meet, so they grab onto one another. <laughs> it's, it's similar to the the tectonic idea. They come and they clash together and then they're stuck together. Okay,
10: through the woods.
3: Two continents have collide and thrust up ocean floor and mantle between them.
0: Plate's moving.
8: Form a line in advance and then they go apart again and they come together again.
0: The plate's moving. When you get home, you're going to swing your partner.
5: Move in one direction and then back across the set in the other direction. Transform faults.
15: Now
2: couple one and three, you're going to meet in the middle for a
15: and
11: gradually close the oceans. And then they get to the middle, they split apart again. <laughs> so it's like the reopening of the ocean, right? Seafloor spreading, transformed, falls.
2: Split in the middle and go home.
8: There's a fracture in the ocean. People come back, but this time, they'll go in a different direction.
1: Through so a whole cycle of ocean opening. Seafloor spreading. And then closing.
15: Continental collision.
1: And when we brought continental margins together.
11: And when you get home, everyone can swing their partner. They split up into pairs then, into couples, and they swing. You're listening to Stylus. This episode is about songs of the earth. These three types of plate boundaries grab onto one another.
5: Kathy Wilson and I are outside her home in Mudis. She's lived here for 45 years. Wilson brings me upstairs to the large rec room where, in the early 80s, she had her first, I guess you'd call it, encounter.
7: If I remember correctly, I was down in this end. And you can see this this end has the most windows.
5: So there she is, in her rec room with all the windows open. And then Wilson hears something. Something odd.
7: Sounds like thunder, except it's a bright, sunny summer day. And there's definitely no sign of thunderclouds.
5: How close did they seem?
7: They seemed like they were in the backyard.
5: It sounded like thunder in your backyard. It was just... It was confusing. But Wilson's not one to stay confused.
7: I'm just a curious person, and if there's something I don't understand, I will try to learn more about it.
5: So Wilson started keeping track of the sounds, writing down when they happened and what they sounded like.
7: Sometimes it would be just boom. Then there were other times when it was more of a crack sound. And then you'd hear something that really did sound like thunder. It would be a rumble, 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 boom, rumble, rumble. It would just go on and on.
5: Wilson was telling everyone in the neighborhood about the noises. Some had heard them, some hadn't, and she met people on her quest to figure out what they were, like local historian Allison Guinness, who says Wilson wasn't the first person to hear these sounds.
16: The Native Americans who lived here heard those sounds back in prehistoric times, and they would come here and have ritual ceremonies.
5: I met Guinness outside, near the sacred cave that the Wangunk tribe thought was the source of those strange noises. We don't have their original story. Rather, Guinness says, what we know today is that story mixed with elements from Western legend.
16: Their evil god, Hobomoko, lived in the cave with witches. And when he was unhappy with the witches, he would throw the witches out that would create the noise and the sound that they heard.
5: The name Mudis is actually a shortened version of a wangunk phrase meaning place of noises. Later on, the settlers who displaced the Native Americans came up with their own theories about the sounds.
16: In the early days, all things were connected to God. That's when the clergymen would use those occurrences to bring their flock into alignment, hoping that they'd be scared to death and come back and behave themselves.
5: So it was like God was getting angry?
16: Yes. As science progressed, those ideas changed considerably over time, like the explosion of gases underground, tides and winds...
5: Even things called carbuncles, smoldering subterranean coals thought to grow in size. Each theory was systematically debunked, but in the end, it was science that solved the puzzle. So you want to hear the Moodus noises? Yeah, that'd be great. John Ebel leads me down a hall at the Weston Observatory at Boston College into a room with a really good sound system. His colleague fires up the recording. You hear birds chirping in the midst of a deep rumble, which at first is nothing more than the sound of the tape recorder used to make the recording over 30 years ago. And then you hear it. What sounds like a quick peal of thunder, but it's not thunder, says John Ebel, who, by the way, is a seismologist. It's the sound of an earthquake. Sound waves in the air and seismic waves in the ground are all the same kind of phenomenon. When a seismic wave from an earthquake gets up to the surface of the Earth, it shakes the Earth. It moves it up and down. So the ground literally acts the way a speaker does and sends the seismic waves from the ground into the air, and that is what we hear. Most seismic waves are too bassy for us to hear them, but not at MUDIS. There, the quakes make waves within the range of human hearing. The reason, at least in part, The earthquakes are extremely close to the surface of the Earth as earthquakes go. Uh, The moodist noises originate from earthquakes with centers that are down about three-quarters of a mile in the Earth. And that's shallow. The fact that Wilson was able to hear such faint earthquakes down below magnitude zero. It's almost like a little burp. Was a huge help to Ebol.
0: MUDIS is the first place where we were able to get firsthand observations by human beings of the earthquake sounds and match them up
5: perfectly with the seismographic data. But since the early 90s, MUDIS has gone quiet.
16: I haven't heard a peep since then.
5: And yet, says historian Alison Guinness, the legacy of those sounds endures here.
16: That's what the teams call themselves, the little noises. So the high school basketball team is called the noises. And the local uh, Drum and Fife Corps is very well known, and they call themselves Thunder in the Valley.
5: Because these noises have become so much a part of the lore here, Guinness says she misses the mystery.
16: The scientists figured it
5: all out. Why do you feel it's important that there be mystery in the world?
16: It's kind of like coming to the end of a journey. And then what do you do?
5: Yeah.
16: It's the getting there, not the being there.
5: Because once you're there, it's time to look for the next mystery.
16: Yes, exactly.
3: Now, the first song celebrates Earth's irreversible sorrows. The energy of the piece, which is enormous, is a, a heroic form of protest against the dark sentiments which the poem expresses. My name is Benjamin Zander, and I've spent a whole lifetime wrestling and experiencing and conducting the works of Gustav Mahler. Mahler's music can express many things simultaneously. The hedonism, the rapturous rapport which he had with nature, loneliness, an overpowering sense of poignancy at the brevity of man's existence, joy in the beauty of the earth, and the return of spring. All of this is expressed at once in this song. Oh, the, the piece is called
15: Das Lied von der Erdo, which means the song of the earth. And the stanza we're listening to now, see there or there in the moonlight on the gravestones crouches a wildly ghost-like eerie form, a monkey it is, hear you, how his howling shrieks forth into the sweet scent of life. Now take the wine. Now is it time, companions, empty your golden cups to the bottom, dark is life is death.
3: For Mala death was an omnipresent force. He had just been forced to resign from his job at the Vienna Opera. His eldest daughter had just died. And he had just discovered that he had a fatal heart disease. These three great blows, he said, I have lost everything. And he had to reinvent himself. And that's what I think he's doing in this piece. It's about living, it's about parting, and it's about salvation.
15: Mahler is drawing on a a long tradition of illustrative music, music in which uh, the composer attempts to say, illustrate a storm uh, or a battle. My name is Thomas Petey. I'm Assistant Professor of Music in the Department of Musicology and Ethnomusicology at Boston University. Uh, By the time he gets to Das Lied von der Erde, he's he has a more abstract uh, way of representing nature and some have suggested even a more documentary approach where he's interested actually in the
3: sounds that he himself hears in the natural world. Mahler's relationship to nature is a fascinating one when he was six years old his father took him on a walk and then suddenly remembered something he had to take care of and ran off leaving Mahler sitting on on a tree stump. Four hours later he came back and Mahler was still sitting there listening to nature. Distant sounds, birds, trees, animals, trumpet fanfares, uh, all of that is in his music. He is given as a gift a book of
15: poetry by a German poet Hans Betke who had essentially taken uh, translations of 8th century Chinese poetry from the Tang Dynasty, originally in French then translated into German and then Betke paraphrases them further and Mahler was intrigued by this reshaping of ancient Chinese poetry into essentially Romantic poetry uh, and Mahler actually added quite a bit of text including some of the extended passages at the end of the last movement of the work.
7: I think it's a, it's a near-death experience. You know, this, the moments before dying. My name is Jane Struess, and I had a long career as a mezzo-soprano, and my specialty was Mahler, and now I teach that. And I think that's what it's about, and I think it's, it's, it's a song of enormous um, feeling of going home. That's the best way I know how to describe it, of being at home, finally.
3: And so we come to the final song, Farewell, Der Abschied, one of the most beautiful creations of mankind, and a pinnacle moment in Mahler's output, a somber rite of death.
15: The Swiss critic, William Ritter, described this opening tableau as conveying an alpine atmosphere. It's stark. It's simple. Mahler has stripped down the orchestra to its bare minimum: a single cello in the bass, a flute, and the voice.
3: The sun goes down behind the mountains, twilight, the coolness of night. I sense the shivering of a delicate breeze behind the dark fir trees. The earth is breathing, full of rest and sleep. All desire now turns to dreaming. Birds huddle on the branches. The world is is falling asleep i stand here and wait for my friend i wait for him to take the last farewell o oh, beauty o oh, eternal love and life intoxicated world
7: experience is that it's very long and you're very tired. <laughs> you are very tired. <laughs> and there's um, it's 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 difficult vocally but it has these wonderful soaring lines and you get onto them and you think, okay, I can do this, I can do this all day long. You know, and again that's this this, this experience of going into another realm, of of of, of going home, if you will.
15: as if his music cannot be contained by the space that it was designed for. And the outside comes in. There's a breach that allows nature, landscape, walking the earth to enter into a space that is a a privileged and very clearly defined space, the 19th century concert hall. So I would say Mahler opens up the doors takes off the roof, perhaps, and we hear what's outside come inside.
3: Have you any idea, he wrote on his score, how this music is to be conducted? I haven't, he said. This music is so ethereal, so without boundaries, so over the bar line, so effervescent that he didn't know himself how to conduct it. At this moment, pure transparency, lightness, weightlessness suspended, and then the words everywhere and eternally, the distance shines bright and blue eternally, eternally.
7: Uh, this is, and this is Mahler, it, it does this a lot, but it's, this particularly brilliant here, is that you're not really supposed to know when the singing ends.
11: This hour about Songs of the Earth was produced by Anna Cataldo, Ari Daniel, Zach Ezor, Connor Gillies, Kainat Khan, Emil Klein, and Lisa Tobin, with help from Margaret Noble, who found the archival earthquake recording. We mixed the montage at the top of the hour from the NASA Voyager Sounds from Earth record from 1977. The show also includes a portion of Bones of the Earth, a documentary about Morne National Park in Canada, by Chris Brooks and Paolo Pietrapalo. Thanks to Catherine Gorman and Erica Lance for helping to edit the hour. And thanks to our engineers, Mike Garth, Chris Johnson, Marquise Neal, James Trout, and Paul Veitkus. Our intro music is by Ryoji Ikeda. We're going out on music by Laurel Halo. Our executive producers are Connor Gillies and Zach Ezor. Our supervising editor is Lisa Tobin. I'm Kainat Khan.
1: Stylus is supported by WBUR in Boston and distributed by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange.